Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. From NBI Studios. This is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. In the wake of Jim Clemente delivering his profile on the case, for the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring some alternate suspects. As of now, in my opinion, Jennifer can be all but ruled out as being involved in Catalina's murder. She's never demonstrated any guilty knowledge of the crime scene, her confession is provably false, and she in no way fits the profile, and most importantly, she simply did not have time to be involved. However, many of our investigative leads, as well as Jim's profile, seem to be pointing us in the direction of Eva as our main suspect. But... This is not the time to put blinders on. We need to continue to look to see if anyone fits the profile and if we have any other legitimate suspects. I am reasonably certain that at least one person from apartment 58 was involved in the murder. And there are two people who were in the apartment that morning that have yet to be investigated. This is Season 10, Episode 16, Youngster. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. These next two episodes are going to be very short and sweet, and they're going to be informational only. I've decided that the best way to investigate Katie and Youngster is to first simply lay out the facts and leave my opinions out of it for at least right now. That is until we can openly discuss our thoughts in the follow-ups. And I'm only covering one of them per episode. This is both for clarity's sake and because with CrimeCon next weekend, I just simply don't have the time to do a full compare and contrast before Zach and I have to head to Austin. So in today's episode, 
I'm going to read to you Youngster's statement to police, and in doing so, I'm going to point out some obvious discrepancies or problems, but we're going to leave the full detailed statement analysis out until after we complete the episode on KD, because I think that it's critically important to overlay these two statements together. In the meantime, it's going to be up to you to decide which parts of Youngster's statement that you believe. Then after that, I'm going to give you as much detail as I have available to me regarding Youngster's criminal record. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Youngster's real name is Pharrell Walton Smith Jr. And the junior is important if you're trying to do your own research into his background. And that's because there is a Pharrell Walton Smith Sr. who was born in 1956, Pharrell's dad, who also has an extensive criminal record, specifically in Harris County. Now, Pharrell was born on August 11, 1978, which means that he was 18 years old on the day of Catalina's murder. Before we dig into his statement, let's first take a look at how he got to the point of going to the station to make the statement. I want to start with Ruby Sullivan's statement to police. Ruby was the mother of the twins that we heard about several episodes ago. In Ruby's statement, she says that on the morning of the murder, she and her two daughters were walking across the parking lot when she noticed some commotion going on around Catalina's apartment. At that point, she could hear sirens, but no police or EMS were on the scene yet. So she leaves her daughters in the parking lot, and she walks up to the scene. I'm going to read the rest of the sequence directly to you from her report. Quote, I saw that the apartment door was slightly opened and a body of a person was on the floor behind the door. At this time, I saw some of the managers. I could see the white maintenance man inside the apartment at the door. Now, this is the part you really need to pay attention to. Shortly after that, two black boys come out of the upstairs apartment. They were both saying out loud, did anybody hear the woman screaming for help? They were saying that her screams were so loud that everyone should have heard her screaming for help. After that, a black female I know as Eva came out of the apartment. She was upset and was saying, why would anyone want to hurt that old lady? She kept asking the question out loud, why would anyone want to do that to the old lady? She would never hurt or bother anyone. She really looked upset about what was happening. Then, after the ambulance and some of the first responders were arriving, I saw the shorter black girl with the bright skin and the black t-shirt walk up the stairs. I can't say where she came from other than she didn't come out of the apartment. When she got there, she just sat next to Eva on the steps. End quote. Noteworthy here is the timing of when and where Eva, KD, Youngster, and Jennifer all come into contact. Ruby says that Katie, Youngster, and Eva came out of Eva's apartment, all vocalizing their concerns very loudly, before the police or ambulance arrived. According to all of the witnesses, Katie and Youngster were not outside when Eva returned to the scene with Pam Wiley. They were upstairs in the apartment. So it would seem, according to Ruby's statement, that right after Eva returned to the scene with Pam, as Truesdale is going into the apartment, Eva went upstairs into her apartment, well before the first responders arrived. So Eva, 
Katie, and Youngster were all in the apartment together during those first few critical moments. Jennifer, however, was not in the apartment at that time, which is consistent with her various versions of statements wherein she followed Keith Truesdale over the fence onto the patio. Now, who knows if that's true, but wherever she was, she did not follow Eva into her apartment in those first few moments. She was down on the ground level somewhere. So, Eva runs for help, returns with the help, then immediately goes up into her apartment. A few minutes later, KD and Youngster come out of the apartment, proclaiming that there was loud screaming and that everyone should have heard it. We'll find out in the next statement we cover that at that point, the two brothers go down the stairs and walk across the street. And then after that, Eva comes out of her apartment and from the top of the stairs tells the world what a great person Catalina was and proclaims her dismay that anyone would ever want to hurt her because she's such a nice lady. Then she sits down on the top of the stairs. Then the ambulance and police arrive, and at that point, Jennifer walks up the stairs and joins Eva sitting there. So here's some facts just to tuck away for later, something to think about. Was Eva ever in the apartment with Katie and Youngster between the body discovery and when they gave their statements? And the answer is yes. They were in the apartment together, alone. Also, was Eva ever in the apartment alone in the first few minutes after the murder? The answer to that, of course, is yes. Next, I'm going to read to you an excerpt from Cena Sullivan's statement. She's one of the twins. Quote, When Pharrell and his brother stopped us in the parking lot, Pharrell asked us if, quote, did we hear anybody scream? As this was taking place, I saw the red-headed manager approaching the apartment along the sidewalk. Over by the bushes next to the stairway, I saw the white guy who was the maintenance man. As the ambulance pulled into the parking lot, Pharrell and his brother walked off away from what was happening. I never saw them again. I then walked over to the commotion at the apartment with my sister. When we got to the end of the stairs, I could see that the front door of the apartment door was open. Immediately behind the front door, I could see that there was a body on the floor behind the open door. I talk all the time to the woman that lives there at the apartment, so I knew that it was her inside. I just stood there to the side while the ambulance personnel arrived at the scene. I saw them go into the apartment, and then I saw Eva, the girl that lives upstairs, come out of her apartment. She came out alone and seemed to be very upset about what was happening. She looked as if she was about to cry. I continued to stand there in the grass, and then I saw Jen come around to the apartment from the parking lot. This was about five minutes later. She was alone, and she was wearing blue jeans and a black t-shirt. She didn't appear to be upset with what was going on. So again, you have Katie and Youngster exiting the apartment. When they walk into the parking lot, they ask the twins if they heard any screaming. Then, the first responders arrive on scene, and the brothers leave the area. After the paramedics entered Catalina's apartment, then Eva emerges from her unit. She had been in there alone at that point. And again, Jennifer was not in the apartment with her. Eva was inside with Katie and Youngster. Then Eva was in the apartment alone for a few minutes. Then she came out and sat on the stairs. And then Jennifer went up and sat with her. As the day went on, Youngster and Katie were nowhere to be found. 
Jennifer and Eva both gave oral interviews at the scene, and then they both went into the station to give written statements. When Jennifer returned to the apartment complex that evening, she left her unit and headed towards Eva's. If you remember, Detective Allen caught up with her that night out in the parking lot, and she pointed out the brothers to him. But by the time Allen walked up to the group of young men, Katie and Youngster were gone. Now, there's no way to know for sure, but I get the impression that Katie and Youngster were also at Eva's that evening before Detective Allen showed up. And we definitely know for a fact that they were there later that night. The next day, Detectives Swainson and Allen were finally able to track Youngster and Katie down. The detectives went to their house and spoke with them in their mother's presence. Then, Katie got in a car with Swainson. They went to the apartment complex and picked up Jennifer, and then they headed to the station. Youngster got into Detective Allen's car and went directly to the station to give his statement. But Allen didn't actually take that written statement. He was busy interviewing Jennifer. It was Sergeant Boyd Smith who took the following written statement from Youngster. Quote, Date, Wednesday, October 30th, 1996, at 3.15 p.m. My name is Pharrell Walton Smith, Jr. I am a black male and I am 18 years old. I have attained 10 years of formal education. I am employed by Miss Unique Beauty Salon. The night before last, I went over to Eva's apartment in the Green Arbor Apartments. I went there to see a girl I know named Jen. I have known her for about three weeks. Jen's mom lives right around the corner from Eva's apartment, but Jen moved in with Eva about two weeks ago. I don't know Eva's last name, and I don't know Jen's last name. I went over there with my half-brother, Kenneth Driver. Everyone calls him KD. We got over there about 9 or 10 p.m. When I got there, Jen was in the bedroom. I went back there, and KD stayed up front where Eva was. We stayed till around 11.30. Then me and KD left and went to PD's apartment in Sabo Village across the street. We stayed there for a while, and then me and KD went back to Eva's to see Jen. We got back to Eva's at about 1 a.m. When I went in, Eva started tripping about us being there. She told me her baby daddy was on the way bringing her daughter, and she didn't want us there when he got there. Me and KD went to the bedroom, and Jen was asleep. I woke her up and told her I was fixing to go to the Southwest, and some of my homeboys were coming to get me. She was half asleep and was acting like she didn't care. So I just jumped in the bed with her and started trying to wake her up. My brother was leaning hard because we had been sipping beer at Petey's apartment. He laid down on the floor. We were all talking and all went to sleep. I was in the bed with Jen and KD was right beside the bed on the floor. The next thing I remember happening was I felt Jen get out of the bed. That woke me up. I asked her what she was doing and she told me it was none of my business. She was wearing a really long black t-shirt. I just laid back down and went right back to sleep. Then, the next thing I knew, I heard a lady screaming. This woke me up. When I woke up, it was just me and my brother. Jen was not in the room. I don't know when she left or how long she had been gone. I jumped up and stepped over my brother and opened the bedroom door. When I did, KD kind of looked at me and said, What's up, Pharrell? I told him I didn't know and walked out of the bedroom. I saw Eva open the front door of the apartment and run downstairs. I started out behind her. I saw that KD was coming out of the bedroom when I was going out the front door. When I got out, I saw that Eva was just making it down to the end of the stairs. I saw Jen standing on the sidewalk on the left of the stairs still wearing that long black t-shirt and light-colored blue jeans. They were both looking towards the sliding door of the apartment that's just under Eva's. Jen was standing so that she was behind Eva about six or eight feet. 
I heard Jen say, call 911. I think she was saying it to two men who were near there. One of the men was about 19 to 20 years old and was sitting on a mountain bike on the sidewalk about 10 feet away from Jen. He looked about 6 foot 2 and had his head shaved. He was wearing a white tank top and he had a stocky build. The other man was walking towards us on the sidewalk that runs between the apartment buildings. I call it an alleyway. This man lives at the apartments. I know him by face and I know he is a dope fiend. He is about 6 foot 3 and skinny. He's about 30 to 32 years old. He was wearing some kind of cap and he has a snaggle tooth or a chip tooth. Both of these men were saying something like, what's happening? Eva was asking over and over if anyone was in the apartment, but no one was answering. Then she said she was fixing to go to the manager's office. At about that time, Jen walked off towards the front of the apartment like she was going to Janet's apartment. I know she uses the phone there all the time. I'm not sure if she left before or after Eva said she was going to the manager's office. After Jen walked off, Eva was still asking questions. By that time, me and KD was all the way down at the bottom. As I was coming down the stairs, I could see that the back door of the apartment that is right under Eva's had been broken. The screen was bent in. When I got down to the bottom of the stairs, I heard someone inside the apartment talking. The voice sounded like it was a man disguising his voice to sound like an old person. The voice was saying things like, I'm okay, I just fell down, and you can go home now. Eva kept asking the voice if she was okay. Did she need an ambulance? Do you need me to call 911? And things like that. The person inside just stopped talking, so Eva said, forget this, I'm just going to the manager's office. Eva ran off towards the manager's office. Eva was gone about two minutes. The two men were still standing there, along with the twins' mom. The twins are two girls named Nina and Sina who live there in these apartments. Their mom was there. When I saw Eva come back, she was with about five people from the office. They were all running. When Eva saw me, she motioned me and whispered for me and my brother to go back upstairs. I think the reason she did that is because the manager lady had told her that there was too much traffic coming in and out of her house. Me and KD went back up into Eva's apartment. When we got up there, we looked out the window. I saw two maintenance guys jump over the fence of the apartment downstairs. I couldn't see from where I was where they went after they jumped the fence. I could hear an ambulance coming, so we went back downstairs. When I went down, the twins' mother was still there. Eva was in the doorway of the downstairs apartment holding her chest like. The door was open and I could see several people inside. I saw the maintenance people, a nurse, and some managers. The nurse was on her knees doing something. I didn't see the lady, I guess there was too many people around her. The ambulance got louder and I looked towards the noise. I saw Jen walking back towards where I was from the direction of Janet's apartment. Jen asked me what happened. I told her I didn't know and walked on by towards the stairs just looking. I saw her talking to a grown lady who wears her hair in lots of braids, like African braids. She lives two staircases away. She knows Jen and Eva. I was still talking to the twins' mom and I had my back turned. I don't know if Jen went inside the apartment or not, but I never saw her go in. I don't know if Jen talked to Eva down there or not. Then, the police started coming in. They were coming silent. They didn't have no sirens on. Right then, I saw Eva and Jen walking up the stairs towards Eva's apartment together. That's when me and my brother saw Janet walking up. She was asking what happened down there. I told her some lady got killed or something. I asked her if I could use her phone. She told me I could and gave me her keys. Janet went on towards the dead lady's apartment, and me and KD went to Janet's apartment to use the phone. 
I wanted to call my friend Richard Smith and tell him to come over if he wanted to get on TV because there was about four different van loads of news vans there. I paged Richard and he called me back. I told him about what was going on and he came over about ten minutes later. We all walked back around there. One policeman came up to me and asked me if I knew a man named Mike. I told him I didn't. Then he just burned off. I never talked to any other policeman. This is all I know. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Obviously, in Youngster's statement, there's all sorts of issues here with timing. We're going to wait to really dissect that part until next week when we break down KD's statement. But let me really quickly lay out the timeline as cleanly as I can as Youngster presents it. So he's sleeping in bed with Jennifer and KD sleeping on the floor next to him. He felt Jen get out of bed. He asks her what she's doing. She says it's none of his business and he goes back to sleep. The next thing he knows, he hears a lady screaming, which woke him up. When he wakes up, it's just him and KD in the bedroom. He jumps up, steps over KD, and opens the bedroom door. KD then says, what's up, Pharrell? And Youngster says he doesn't know, and he walks out of the bedroom. Then he sees Eva open the front door, and she runs down the stairs. KD and Youngster follow Eva out the door. When they get outside, Jen is standing outside on the sidewalk. Then Jen says, call 911. But she's possibly speaking to Red Rock and Housen, who are now on the scene. Meanwhile, Eva is asking over and over if anyone is in the apartment but no one was answering. Then Eva says that she's going to the manager's office, and then Jen walks off towards Janet's apartment. After Jen walked off, Eva continues to ask questions. Then Youngster continues down the stairs to the bottom. That's when he hears someone inside the apartment talking, a voice that sounded like it was a man disguising his voice. The voice says, I'm okay, I just fell down, and Eva's asking more questions like, do you want me to call 911? Then the voice stopped talking, and Eva said, forget this, and ran off to the manager's office. Red Rock and Housen are still standing there, and now so is Ruby Sullivan, when Eva ran off. Then Eva returns with five people from the office. As they're running to the scene, Eva whispers at Youngster to go back upstairs, which he assumes is because the manager had told her about the complaints. Youngster goes back into the apartment, and then he looks out the window, and he sees two maintenance men jumping the patio fence. And then he hears sirens coming, and so he goes back downstairs. When he gets downstairs, Ruby Sullivan is still there, and Eva was in Catalina's doorway. Youngster says that he could also see Doris Gibson inside on her knees performing CPR at this point. Then, as the sirens got closer and closer, Youngster sees Jennifer walking back up to the apartment from Janet's. Then Jen asks him what happened. Jen then starts talking to a lady with lots of braids that lives in the same building. 
Youngster says that he's busy talking with Ruby Sullivan, so he doesn't know what Jen did after that. Then the police start arriving, and Jen and Eva walk up the stairs together. Then Janet Dorsey walks up to the scene. She asks Youngster what happened. He says that he thinks some lady got killed, and he asks her to use her phone. He and Katie then go to Janet's, pays their friend Richard to let him know that if he comes by, he might be able to be on TV. Then they walk back towards the apartment, and a cop stops Youngster and asks him if he knows a mic. Youngster says that he doesn't, and the cop speeds away. So, obviously, there are some serious problems with this timeline. But again, we're going to dig into the statements much deeper after we get through KD's statement. But a couple big discrepancies worth noting right now are how, according to Youngster's statement, he and KD were never in the apartment alone with Eva. But we have two other witnesses, interviewed separately, who saw both brothers exit Eva's apartment after she returned with Pam Wiley and before the ambulance arrived, which is when Youngster says he exited the apartment. But in his version, Eva was standing downstairs in Catalina's doorway at that point. But according to Ruby and Cena, Eva was in the apartment with them, and she exited after Katie and Youngster. The other thing that's worth noting right now is the fact that Youngster says that a cop stopped him that morning and asked if he knew anyone named Mike. Now, what's interesting about that is the fact that the only other place where we hear the name Mike is in KD's statement. If you remember, in his written statement, which we'll go over next week, KD says that he thought he heard someone inside Catalina's apartment say, let me go, Mike. But the issue or problem or concern here is that KD was in the other room giving that statement about hearing the name Mike at the same time that Youngster was giving his. Meaning that the police shouldn't have known anything about any Mike until Wednesday. But according to Youngster, a cop was asking him about Mike the day before on Tuesday, just moments or maybe an hour after the murder. So I don't know what to make of that. Is Youngster making that detail up? Or is he wrong about the cop asking him about Mike? Or did it really happen? In which case, we need to be asking ourselves why the police were looking for a Mike within an hour of the murder. And lastly, I'm really wondering about the lady with lots of braids that lives a couple staircases away from Catalina in the same building. According to Youngster, she was there and likely home during the attack. But we have no record of the police ever speaking to this mystery woman. Next up, we're going to take a look at Youngster's criminal record. As I said, I'll give you as much information about each charge as possible. I have not filed open records requests for each offense. What you're going to be hearing are the charging documents when they're available via the Harris County District Clerk website, at least for the cases that could be relevant to Catalina's murder. He has several minor drug charges that I'll just be bullet pointing. So Youngster, or Pharrell, comes by his criminal behavior honestly. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Pharrell is a junior. As I said, his father, Pharrell Sr., has an extensive criminal record himself. Which, if you're not careful when looking through the website, it's easy to confuse the two and their charges. 
Pharrell Sr. has offenses ranging from theft and burglary to several misdemeanor assaults. But Youngster's first contact with the law, at least in the adult court system that we know about, came on March 19th of 96, about seven months before the murder. He was 17 at the time. His first arrest was for possession of marijuana, zero to two ounces. A month later, he was popped for possession again with the same charge. After that, Youngster avoided the law for over a year. On May 13th of 1997, so now we're several months after the murder, he was charged with driving with a suspended license. And then two months after that, on July 12th of 1997, he was charged with attempted burglary of a vehicle, a misdemeanor. Now, this one obviously could be interesting if you believe that Catalina's killers were actually trying to steal a car. Unfortunately, there are no charging documents connected with this case on the website. So the only information that I have is that he pled guilty to the charge. About two weeks after the attempted burglary of a vehicle, Youngster was arrested for a felony, unauthorized use of a vehicle. And unfortunately, again, there's very little information available on this case. What we know is that on September 22, 1997, the judge sentenced Youngster to three years deferred adjudication, which means that he's on probation for three years with a jail sentence on the line if he messes up the probation, which it appears that he did a month later. The record shows that on October 29, 1997, which was exactly one year after Catalina's murder, the charge was adjudicated and Youngster was sentenced to 16 months in state jail. But he didn't serve the full 16 months. We know that because he was arrested again on May 13th of 1998 for felony burglary of a habitation. The arrest was for a burglary that actually occurred a year before, on September 1st, 1997. So actually, technically, he could have still been in jail at this point, because it was some forensic evidence that came out a year later that connected him to the crime. This is what the charging instrument says about the case. Quote, Affian believes and has reason to believe that the defendant, Pharrell W. Smith, committed the felony offense of burglary of a habitation on or about September 1, 1997, in Harris County, Texas. Affian spoke with the complainant, Mary Ann Nivens, whom Affian believes to be credible and reliable, who told Affian on September 1, 1997, someone had broken a window and entered her residence located at 7322 Thorough in Houston, Harris County, Texas, and had taken numerous items, including jewelry, a television set, a VCR, and assorted video games, without her effective consent. Affiant learned during the investigation that the HPD Layton Print Laboratory had identified fingerprints belonging to the defendant that had been lifted on September 1, 1997, at the scene from the complainant's jewelry case that was in her bedroom. The complainant advised Affiant that she does not know the defendant, nor did she give the defendant her effective consent to break into and enter her residence on September 1, 1997, and take her property. End quote. On October 29th of 1998, now... Exactly two years after Catalina's murder, Youngster took another plea deal and was sentenced to five years in prison. In 2001, Pharrell was out of prison. It looks like he served less than three years of his five-year sentence. On April 16th of 2001, he was arrested for driving without a license. But that charge was later thrown out because Youngster had evidently been issued a driver's license by the Department of Public Safety on April 1st, two weeks before the charge. But he got hit again for driving on a suspended license in December of 2002 
but that charge was dropped, again, this time due to some sort of clerical issue. So up until this point, none of Youngster's charges involve any sort of violence. He was caught with a little weed, tried to steal a car, broke into someone's house when they weren't home. All not great, obviously, but also not violent. But that changes on September 20th of 2003. Pharrell was arrested on September 20th, 2003 for a misdemeanor assaulting a family member. And this is what the charging instrument says. Quote, Pharrell Smith hereafter styled the defendant, heretofore on or about September 20th, 2003, did then and there unlawfully, intentionally, and knowingly cause bodily injury to Jacqueline a member of the defendant's family, and hereafter styled the complainant by striking the complainant with his hand. I'm not sure who Jacqueline is. They don't list her last name. But Youngster is arrested for striking her with his hand. But nothing really came of it. He spent two days in jail when he was arrested, and then a few months later, he had his day in court and was sentenced to the two days that he had already served. He wasn't even given a fine. A year and a half later, Youngster was picked up for a misdemeanor possession of marijuana charge again. That was on March 4th of 2004. A year after that, on February 20th, 2005, he gets hit with another felony, this time for credit-slash-debit card abuse. There aren't any details of this in the case file, other than his sentence. He took a plea deal for 12 months in jail on June 23rd, 2005. Between the offense and the plea deal, though, Youngster was popped with another possession of marijuana charge, but it was actually dismissed as part of the plea deal for the credit card fraud. After serving his year in jail, Youngster was arrested again on December 10, 2006 for driving with a suspended license. This time, he was sentenced to 15 days in the county jail. And four months later, he was picked up again for a felony. On April 17, 2007, Youngster, then 28 years old, was arrested for felony possession of a weapon. This is what the charging document says. Quote, Pharrell Smith hereafter styled the defendant heretofore on or about April 16, 2007, did then and there unlawfully, intentionally, and knowingly possess a firearm after having been convicted of a felony namely credit card abuse, in the 209th District Court of Harris County, Texas, in cause number 1017480 on June 23, 2005, and said possession of a firearm occurred before the fifth anniversary of the defendant's release from confinement following conviction on June 23, 2005. Up to this point, we haven't seen any evidence of youngster using or possessing a weapon. The most violent crime on his record was hitting a family member with his hand, a charge that amounted to two days in jail. He tried to steal a car once, evidently unsuccessfully, and he used someone's credit card and broke into a house when no one was home. But now, it seems in 2007, things are taking a turn. Now, he's carrying a gun. His weapons charge, however, was dismissed on April 29th of 2008, but not because of some technicality. It was because youngster was dead. Lucky Land Casino. 
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is a press release issued by the Houston Police Department on April 21st, 2008. The fatal shooting of a robbery suspect at 5602 Melanite at about 1.45 p.m. on Friday, April 18th will be referred to a Fort Bend County Grand Jury. The suspect suffered a gunshot wound and was pronounced dead at the scene. His identity is pending verification by the Galveston County Medical Examiner's Office. A female victim, Amber Marie Holt, 22, suffered a laceration to her head as a result of the attempted robbery. HPD Homicide Division Sergeant Jay Brooks and Senior Police Officer M. Waters reported, three armed suspects committed a home invasion robbery at a residence at 5602 Melanite and confronted three victims inside, striking Ms. Holt with a pistol. The two other male victims retrieved their own weapons and exchanged gunfire with two suspects, striking one of the suspects. The two remaining suspects fled the residence on foot to a waiting vehicle driven by a fourth suspect. None of the victims was shot. The wanted suspects are described only as three black males. They were seen leaving the scene in a gold or tan four-door 2000-2005 Ford, possibly a contour. Anyone with information regarding this case is urged to contact HPD Homicide Division. The suspect who was killed in the home invasion was later identified as Pharrell Walton Smith Jr. Youngster. He was 29 years old. The manner in which Youngster died has been cited by several listeners who have jumped ahead to do their own research as a big possible red flag, which isn't out of the question. Catalina was killed in a home invasion, and Youngster was later killed in the process of trying to commit a home invasion. On the surface, it is indeed a great big red flag. But I don't think it's quite that simple. It's all too easy to put a guy like Youngster into a box. He's a criminal, right? He's a thief, etc. But I believe that there's a bigger picture here. Did Youngster participate in the home invasion because that's just always been his nature? Was he also a home invader 10 years before this? Or is what we're seeing here the evolution of a man who got caught up in a system that kept him from breaking free of his criminal past? I'm not saying that I have the answers for you. These are questions that we need to be considering and discussing. With that being said, I want to invite as many of you as possible to leave me a voicemail for next week's follow-up episode. We're still going to have our normal Q&A session, 
but I also would like to hear directly from some of you regarding your thoughts about Youngster. So sometime between now and Wednesday morning, if you have a strong opinion about Youngster as a suspect, please call our voicemail line at 269-224-2833. Just please try to be concise with your message, preferably around one minute. We just can't play three, four, five-minute voicemails on the show. We just can't do it. So try to collect your thoughts, leave a brief message, and we'll play it and discuss it on the follow-up. And with that, I'm going to bring this episode to a close. Like I said in the beginning, it's kind of short and sweet. As of now, that's everything that we have or know about Youngster. And next week, we're going to be taking a closer look at his brother, KD. Between now and then, I hope to see a whole bunch of you at CrimeCon next weekend. And a few people have asked, so I wanted to put it out there. If you're in the Austin area but aren't going to CrimeCon, make sure you're checking my social media, either my personal accounts at Bob Ruff Truth or at Truth Justice Pod or even at True Crime Binge on Twitter and Instagram because we will definitely be doing at least one fan meetup outside of the convention. I know that myself, Maggie Freeling, Nick and Captain, a whole bunch of us, Dr. Shiloh, I think, a whole bunch of us planned to get together and do a great big fan meetup like we do every crime con outside of the convention. So if you're in the area, you're interested in joining, just stay tuned to social media because as of right now, I don't know when or where we're doing that, but I will keep you posted. In the meantime, I'm looking forward to digging into KD for next week's episode, and I'm looking forward to seeing a whole bunch of you in Austin. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. 
For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.